Hey everyone, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat, a podcast recorded on Gayamago land, a part of the Aurora Nation, by myself, Liam Miller, he, him, his, a minister in the United Church in Australia. Uh, it's the first interview from, from these new digs people will be seeing. I'm in a new office, uh, but I'll explain all that another place, another time. But because uh, I've, I've, nothing about me is important today because I have a wonderful guest back on the show, Professor Anthony Reddy. Anthony, Anthony, welcome so much. Welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat. Well, welcome back. Indeed, well, it's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> so um, we're going to talk today because uh, your book, Is God Colorblind, has had a re-release with a new afterword and, and a new edition, and so I'm really excited to talk about that. But I guess for folks who maybe aren't familiar with you, haven't come across your, your work before, uh, you know, what does your work look like? I mean, obviously, you know, you're working from home now, like like a lot of folks, but where, where do you find yourself working? What are the kind of things that fill your work days uh, for those who are interested in, in knowing that? Yeah, well, um, I've had quite a significant change in, in it as my work in the last year or so. So I, uh, so maybe, maybe just slightly before, well, last January, I started a new job in Oxford University, which is a, a, a fairly remarkable kind of experience to be in, lastly, because I never imagined myself as a black liberation theologian, um, especially someone who, in his first degree, did atrociously in his first degree. You know, because my first, my first degree, I didn't work that hard. So what I often tell students is, you know, like there's always redemption. There's always a chance to <laughs> kind of turn it around. So as an undergraduate student, I was pretty poor. So the idea that I would end up working in Oxford University as an academic seems ridiculous, but that's where I am. So, yeah, so I direct the Oxford Centre for Religion and Culture. That's part of Regents Park College. That's one of the colleges that, that makes up Oxford University. And I guess in, in a curious way, my life is kind of divided between the formalism of the academy in terms of being in Oxford with its very, very um, academic, rigorous forms of teaching, which actually I really enjoy. Mm. But but alongside that, I'm essentially an activist. So so the writing I do is not primarily or solely focused on the academy, but it's about how do we empower people, or mm. particularly people on the margins, how do we transform their thinking, how do we get people to think in terms of acts of solidarity with each other in order to challenge empire and imperialism and capitalism and all the various isms that in impact on people's lives and constrict their realities and their opportunities like for full growth and to be and and, and the full life that Jesus talks about in John 10 10. Mm-hmm. So really that's been very much really the work of the last 20 odd years really is been this um uh, this activist mode of black liberation theology using particularly uh, uh, sort of decolonial transformative forms of critical pedagogy mm-hmm. both to challenge ideas and concepts and theories but also like to challenge people and to challenge mm-hmm. structures and systems and practices that's really been very much what I've been about Thank you for that. That's that's great. And you know, when we had you, when I had you on a, a while ago now to talk about theologizing Brexit, your your book there, um, you know that that's very much what that book is dealing with too. Those those the undercurrents um, that not exactly you know, this account of how Brexit happened, but the undercurrents that led and and were relied upon for Brexit to happen in terms of racialized and colonialized attitudes, um, ideas of British exceptionalism that that needed to be you know critique through a theological lens in order to be understood um and i guess as you say there you're challenging systems and structures and you're challenging 
individuals. And I guess, you know, now we come to this book, you know, is God colorblind? And I think, you know, that's really a very like um, personal, personally directed thing at a lot of folks for, for, for many who, believe, you know, who would say that, yes, of course, of course God is colorblind because God sees the heart and God knows all uh, God's dear children and and your know, color is something that we are imposing in terms of value and stuff like that. So I guess, you know, for those who've never come across the book, let alone it's it's newer edition, I guess what kind of drew you to writing this book then and then maybe what uh, leads to now in the revision and the afterword? Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of the, uh, the initial version, it came really from a very specific story. So I was doing a workshop in South London. Mm-hmm. That's called Brixton. So Brixton is historically been seen as, I guess, the capital of Black Britain. I guess, because really, that's when the Windrush generation, people came from the Caribbean islands that part of the British Empire when they came in the 50s and 60s. One of the first places they settled large numbers was this particular borough or South London called Brixton. And so I was doing a workshop in a Pentecostal church and I was talking about black theology. And I thought it was going really well. And for the most part, people were nodding and smiling in, in all the right places and, and laughing at all the appropriate jokes. I thought it was going really, really well. Only to find out I've been lulled into a false sense of security because actually, then when it came to the Q&A, people actually were not really that happy. And I and the thing that really hit me was this young guy, early twenties, who got and he was really quite distressed. I mean, he almost had—I think he did have te- tears in his eyes—and said, "I found I found the way in which you keep talking about blackness and being black offensive. I find it problematic." And these are the words I'll never forget. He said, "I stopped being black when I was saved," and that just stunned me. And my reply, which I've always regretted, and one of the things I wish I could find this guy again, because my reply was, I'm not sure at what point black became so bad that God had to save you from it. Mm. Now, whilst I still think that is a fair theological question to ask, put it that way, I think devalued his own agency, which I regret because I, because one thing I've always held the view is that anyone, everyone has the right to name and describe themselves how they wish. Mm-hmm. Even if I disagree with it, even if I think, quite frankly, that's the most preposterous thing you've ever said in terms of how you name yourself. If you're naming yourself and that's one of the true powers of being a human being mm-hmm. is to name oneself. Animals, other animals get named. Mm-hmm. That's part of that kind of that possible of objectification, but humans name themselves. So if he wants to believe that that he has transcended being black because he's been saved, as much as I think that's a problematic statement, that's his right. So I've also regretted that response, but that got me thinking on the train going back to Birmingham. Uh, it's a couple hours journey. So what is it about blackness and being black that is so problematic that this guy believes that once he was saved and became a um, part of the body of Christ and he was redeemed and sanctified and all the usual theological language we use, but particularly evangelical conversions, that somehow he can now transcend the skin he was in and the political construction that comes with it. Mm-hmm. And that's what then got me thinking it into about kind of writing the book. So... I guess one of the reasons I put a question mark is because at one level, we really don't know. 
you know, like, uh, what I always say is, well, I always say is what James Cohn says, so James Cohn's my time, him and Cohn says, theology is human speech about God. God doesn't do theology. God is a subject of theology. God knows God's self, so God doesn't do theology on God's self. We do theology, but we do it, hopefully, with a degree of humility at noting that there's a fundamental gap between what we say about God and, and who God is in God's self. Mm, mm. So no theologian, if they're honest, writes their work with the notion that God's on their shoulder, uh, so whispering into their ear saying, Anthony, this is exactly how it goes. This is the, you know, this is like the final word on it. That's not what we're doing. So it's question mark, is God colorblind? And I guess part of it, the answer depends upon what, how you interpret the significance of colour, of ethnicity, of quote-unquote race, in very mm. common that race doesn't, exist, race doesn't exist as a construct. If we're saying that by acknowledging difference, ethnicity, our, our epidermis, our appearance, in hierarchical terms, i.e., I, so you're a white man in Australia, that makes you superior to me, that makes you superior, let's say, to Aboriginal and other First Nation peoples, which we know is a legacy of racism and empire and colonialism. If that's how we're construing difference, and clearly God is colorblind. God is not buying into those constructs mm -hmm. that are creating hierarchies based upon skin pigmentation and the political and social significance and theological significance of those things with white at the top and black African at the bottom and various other mixes in between, which varies on what age you're looking at as to how many categories they are. Because, you know, I'm, because race is a construct and it's made up, people can't even agree on how many races they are. So at various points, it, it's been four, been 16, within the Spanish... American empire, like there were 128 so-called races. So, you know, so it's 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 a made-up fiction. Mm. Therefore, if if we're thinking in terms of ethnicity and race, inverted commas, the link to those forms of empire and colonialism and hierarchy, then God is indeed colorblind. If, however, which is really what I'm trying to say in the book, we say actually, we see them not in hierarchical terms, but we see them as indices of the glorious handiwork of God, that God's handiwork has created this patchwork, this mosaic of difference that is not hierarchical, it fits more like, it fits more together like a jigsaw. Mm. That actually, if you put all the pieces together, then what you get is this fantastic picture of humanity in its glorious breadth and depth. And each, and each piece is important. If you don't have the, that piece, then what you don't have is a full picture. Now, if you see difference in those terms, then God is not colorblind. Mm -hmm. That God sees those differences because God created them. And therefore, what I was trying to do in the book, if nothing else, was to rehabilitate blackness, to say, actually, there's nothing to be apologetic about it. On the contrary, what black theology says is, is, is that not only do you not transcend blackness when you become saved, actually, what you should do is to delve into blackness mm. because it's in blackness that you find God, that God is revealed in those social constructions that have always been told that they are at best, second or third best, and at worst, of no significance and consequence whatsoever. So in your context, 
I have no doubt that if one wants to be to find the authentic revelation of God, you have to go into marginalized and dispossessed First Nation communities to go amongst Aboriginals, to go amongst those who have had their identity stolen, those whose children were taken off them by well-meaning white missionaries and given to white, uh, to white families. It's in those places, not in some of the citadels of white colonialism that you're gonna find God. It's gonna be in those, in those identities that have been so traduced and people have felt embarrassed about it and somehow felt that they had to run away and escape it in order to become respectable. That's what I'm trying to say in the book. Mm. Yeah, thank you for that. And I think the other thing that kind of came to mind is, um, like you mentioned James Cone, and like he would often write about one of the things that, you know, brought him the most critique or, or the most like questions was his whole thing of I'm black before I'm Christian. Like I was black yeah. before I was Christian, like, you know, and that, that continued. And that is the primary lens through which he, you know, the, he interprets the world through which the world engages him. Like I think of like, you know, his response in that thing of someone saying, well, I'm no longer black. It's like, well, the world will see you that way, like, and treat you that way, regardless of how you see yourself. And so Cone, like that, he, you know, there's no, you know, if Cone was more Wesley and he'd be like, you know, you can't yeah. go your experience is being black and there's no way to go past that both in the way you experience the text and the way the tradition experiences you so but it was interesting thinking about that 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 was so much often the the critique leveled at him that that was somehow antithetical to being a christian to claim that this other identity held some sort of primary or at least framing um place in that in that in that discovery and life of faith yeah, absolutely, yeah. And certainly, I think around the same time I did the, the initial version of the book, I remember doing an interview. I've been asked that very self-same question. I, I, I was on a gospel show, and the presenter was a relatively conservative uh, black Christian and said, well, you know, um, Cohn has said, how would you respond to her? And, and And for some strange reason, the interview, despite the fact that I self-identified as a black theologian, assumed I would give a different answer to Cohn. I'm not quite sure where I got that idea. <laughs> no, I said, I agree absolutely with Cohn. I said, when I was born, I wasn't born a Christian. I was born mm. black. Mm. And when I'm walking down the street and my black body's perceived as a problem, there's not a sound in my head says, well, oh, I'm black, but don't worry, I'm a Christian. Uh, no, I'm, I'm just black. But actually the truth is every Christianity is some type of Christianity. Mm. So, so actually, seeing the idea sometimes I'm just a Christian is simply not true because, because so the question then becomes actually what kind of Christian are you? All of us have a social location, so our Christianity is informed by whether we're honest about it or not, informed by our social location, formed by our class, ethnicity, culture, political affiliations. All those things feed into, which is why we have such a diversity and multiplicity of churches. I realized that I didn't answer that the second part of the question. So the updated version of the book really came out to the Black Lives Matter um, movement. So the death of George Floyd last year, 24th of May, or 25th of May, I can't remember which one it is, but anyway, it's was, it was, it was one of those two days, um, 25th, I think, last year, that then leads to the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement. And whereas I think in its first iteration, it was very much a North American conversation. I think this time around when it was in, in, its, re, in its resurgence, it became much more of a global movement. And so within the British context, we suddenly had this sudden awareness of the need to talk about race and the need to have 
a more mainstream conversation. So whereas people like myself have been writing about race and theology for the best part of 20 odd years, for the most part, up until last year, this was always a minority fringe thing mm. that only a few white people were interested in and, and maybe a few black people as well. What really surprised me, actually, it was a publisher who came to me and said, oh, by the way, by that point, like, the book had been out of print for several years. And they came back and said, actually, like we've had this sudden surge of interest in a book that we've deleted. So we're going to republish it. But we were wondering if you'd like to add a section mm. about Black Lives Matter, because obviously when I first wrote it in 2009, Black Lives Matter didn't exist. So, so they asked me if I'd like to add a section and, and to go back through it and just to make some other subtle change. So again, when I wrote in 2009, Trump wasn't around. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually it was written at the time of the optimism of Obama in mm. 2009. So clearly that had changed. So I went back and made a few changes but then added this afterward which is really just a much more explicit linking of the earlier ideas in the book where black lives matter mm. and part of it actually really was i think just to try and say that that we make a mistake if we focus too much upon the extremist actions of that police officer who kills george floyd that's not to say it's not it's hugely significant but the truth is, most ordinary white people don't go around killing other people. Thank God. That is not the norm. Mm. Most of us are law-abiding citizens and we live within our respective societies and we say that we, we hold to the existing rule of law that's being created by, whether it's in Australia or in Great Britain. Therefore, what I want to push at is not the extremism, it's the embedded ways in which particular viewpoints and perspectives I've set in motion that ends up with the extremist action of a police officer mm. killing George Floyd. But actually, way before you get to that, you have an embedded set of, of theological ideas, socio-political, cultural ideas that have always seen black bodies as problematic as the other. Mm. So therefore, even if people are not extremists, there are already existing ideas so one of the things I talk about in the afterward is growing up in Bradford, which was a, a post-industrial city in the north, which was, there were no laws that said that people could live here or not live here. So there was no legal segregation. And yet there may as well be, because like you could spot where all the black Canadian and the migrants live, because like we all lived in the poorest parts of the city in certain boroughs of the city. And the other parts were literally like the White Highlands, where if you were found walking there, one of two things would happen. Like you'd either get beaten up by the locals or the police would stop you and ask you what business you had being in this area, mm. given that your type of people don't live here. Mm. That was my natural reaction growing up. And the key moment that politicised me, and, and I share this in the book, was the large evangelical Methodist church I went to they said there was support on March. There was a march, I think, in the late 70s to win back the city for Christ. So it was um, organised through a um, through a kind of evangelical kind of missional activity around um, saving the Christian identity mm-hmm. of the city, winning back Christ for the city. Mm-hmm. But this was very much anti-Muslim and anti-immigrant. 
So officially it wasn't political, officially it wasn't racist, officially it was about winning for Christ. But it was very clear that these were conservative right-wing white Christians who wanted their city back because that they were troubled with all the immigrants coming to the city. And what I remember was my mom, who was very much like the beating heart of our family in terms of being its anchor, in terms of both its moral weight of the family, plus she was a fervent and devout Christian. And she said to us, like, we're not going on that match. That match is not about us. Mm. And just instinctively, I, at that point, I thought, oh, yeah, because I'm a black Christian. Okay, I'm part of this church, I'm a Christian. But when they talk about the march to save the city, what they're talking about is to save it from people like us, even though we're mm. Christians and not abiding. And we pay our taxes and, and we're respectable. Mm. But, we, but, like, we don't really belong. It wasn't a violent march, but it was a march where we were still othered. Therefore, if you understand how that plays into popular culture, how it gets fed now in terms of the media, particularly in terms of social media, how the rise of racist rhetoric and the othering of people who are not part of the mainstream, how that happens now with the proliferation, that long before you get to the violence of George Floyd being murdered, you have the ongoing problematic way in which blackness has been perceived and and understood mm. therefore once i see that the, the asymmetrical ways in which that's understood then just think about you know i mean even like the so-called moral vision of of former president trump so peaceful peaceful black people taking the knee deeply problematic absolutely abhorred absolutely condemned Mm. White mob trying to attack and overthrow democracy. These are the people we love you. We care about you. You're very precious to us. Okay, so so peaceful people taking the knee are problematic, but but white thugs attacking the seat of democracy, nah, not so bad. Yeah, mm. yeah. I think that's 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 very helpful because I think otherwise you can just point to these things and be like, well, I'm I would never do that uh, and my family no one in my family would ever do that and so this you know this isn't about us and I think so I think you're right to, that that's important to get at that one thing I thought of when, when we were leading up to this interview and I think it fits well in this in in terms of what's perceived as a threat and what's perceived as problematic is so a big story in Britain and the church recently was with Reverend uh, Jarrell Robinson Brown um, who, who tweeted about the you know kind of uh, national nationalistic you know fervor that, that was surrounding um, oh, Captain Tom uh, and you know as people have said a salient point one made by plenty of others including plenty of of white people but like one that you know but we saw what the reaction was the the, the vile. Um, threats and abuse on social media and also not only social media from from mainstream media and and lukewarm to um, problematic uh, responses from 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 the church body from from the Church of England from the Diocese of London um, but I think you know in some ways that that taps to what you're saying there is that the, you know it's almost this like this audacity to be black and to question 
the, the, the ideals of this nation, to be to, to question uh, a figure in our past. I mean, I think it fits very well with what you're talking about in the, you know, from theologists in Brexit of it's like, you know, these are these attitudes that if you start to poke at them, they can only be read as a vicious, you know, racist assault and not, you know, maybe a, um, you know, a, a uh, astute critique on the way an individual has been co-opted into a particular kind of movement. Indeed, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I'm pretty sure that at some point in the future, people like myself and maybe not just me, other people will want to write about this as being a really significant moment in the socio-political fairing of identity within Britain kind of post-Brexit. Because, you know, I mean, it's obviously, it's a very, very complex uh, situation in one respect. um, um, Was the timing of the original tweet the best? No, probably not. And I know Jarrell very, very well. He apologised. We drew it very quickly. Hmm. The original tweet was not attacking Captain Tom at all. On the contrary, it applauded him for his selfless act and I think ended with my friend saying he would pray for his hmm. soul. I mean, he doesn't get any more... He doesn't get any more affirming and respectful than to say that one's going to pray for him mm. as a great individual mm. who's beloved by God. That's what it says. What's interesting in terms of what was effectively a white right-wing electronic lynch mob, mm. lynch mob, mm. is as you say, it's this question of the tropes around this particular individual. So it's so a World War II veteran and a hero, but it's the last great hurrah. We still talk about this being our greatest hour. Mm. Okay, so whether it is or not, look how long ago that is and how much time has expanded since, but somehow that's still our greatest hour. So we go back to that moment in order to make ourselves feel good. What we're not looking at is the way in which this this octogenarian, is that the right 100-year-old person? I can never get these terms right. Anyway... Okay, any of that bit out if it's not correct. Uh, um, so a guy who's 100 raises a huge amount of money for our national health service, which you have to remind people is not a charity, mm. okay? It's not a charity. <laughs> it is. It's something that's meant to be paid for properly through taxation. Mm. Therefore, this guy's again, I will reiterate, he's done a fantastic, heroic act. Mm. But he then gets co-opted in order to deflect us, firstly from the inane bungling of this administration, mm. whose incompetence has not, is, is not the cause of the disproportionate numbers of deaths of, of black and Asian and minority ethnic people, but it certainly hasn't helped. That's the first thing. Secondly, is the fact that the National Health Service is not defined by whiteness. It's defined by the fact that a disproportionate number of people are migrants from other places. The ones who get demonised but are doing front-facing public work, vulnerable, Mm. underpaid, Mm. they're underpaid in 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 an institution that itself is underfunded. But let's clap this guy rather than look at some of the deeper systemic issues. I still remember a friend of mine who is who works in the health service, person of colour who said, and pardon my French for the expletives, she said, and I quote, 
fuck the clapping. I want a pay rise. Mm. Mm. That clapping is not going to help me pay for my bills. And the fact is that she works full-time. She's a full-time nurse. Mm. Recently qualified nurse who still has to access a food bank in order to feed her children. Full-time person, but still needs a food bank to, to feed her children. No, let's not talk about that. Let's just clap. Mm. Now, when someone says, well, actually, this clapping is problematic because it disguises and, and is using a particular form of nostalgia of white nationalism in order to in order to de- in, in order to deflect us from the systemic issues that COVID is clearly showing are problematic within our body our body political of our nation. Actually then let's just sort of attack the guy. And if you want to sort of see the nature then of white supremacy, it's all of a sudden him him being black and being gay, which last time I checked had nothing at all to do not at all uh, to do with the tweet, essentially. Even if you don't write the tweet, I'm not sure what him being black and gay has anything to do with anything about the tweet itself, except, of course, as we know, that the agency of black people, particularly if you are gay, is somewhat circumscribed. So, so what's interesting, when I engaged rather foolishly with some of, of, of his detractors, who were just some of the mean-spirited, nasty set of right-wingers who have never liked black and Asian people in, in Britain. So again, part of what this was about was a way of engaging a type of culture war of people who have always resented our presence in mm-hmm. Britain. And the reason I say that is that when I challenged one of them, I said, OK, so what's going on? Oh, oh, it's... Tweet was utterly offensive. It's disgraceful. It should be run out of the church. I said, okay. So let me ask this question. I said, have you ever complained about any of the tweets that Katie Hopkins has put out? Which, quite frankly, on, on the scale of what Jarrell said, there is no comparison. Oh, yeah, but here's the thing, though, you see. White people get a pass. Hmm. The bar is set so high for her that, that for her to get death threats, requires her pretty much to make some of the most extremist and obnoxious comments. Mm. Jamel, on the other hand, is black and gay, so it's not just that he's black, it's, it's, it's also his sexuality as well, then suddenly forces him into hiding for a tweet that, at the very worst, is ambiguous. Yeah. It's ambiguous, because actually you, you can read it as offensive or you can read it in a slightly different way. That is very, very different, for example, from a prime minister who has been on record as saying that black people are, uh, who again, where, um, what's it, that phrase, because I don't want to misquote him, where something with what, um, where something with watermelon smiles, I can't remember mm-hmm. exactly how it goes, but certainly like it's called Muslim women letterboxes. Somehow that hasn't evoked their ire, mm. but Jarrell's words have, mm. because as you, as, as you quite rightly say, black people, we're not meant to have any agency. Our only role within the body politic of the public is pretty much to be quiet and invisible and know our place. All right for us to do menial work, all right for us to be passive and supine when we offer opinions and when and when we dare to challenge the existing narrative of white nationalism and entitlement, then all hell breaks loose and breaks loose in a disproportionate way, not in comparison to the kind of things that genuine 
right-wing racists at the same time. So again, it was interesting that some of the detractors were saying, well, Drone needs to be run out because it's a racist. Mm. Yeah. But actual white people who actually are racist and the ones are, and the ones like and the ones like you've never complained about. Yes. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, what I thought was so often so interesting too, and I, and I think, you know, there'd be parallels here with those who marched in that march that you talked about, the, the winning the city back for Christ, is how many of them who are, you know, winning it back for Christ, similar to here, who are concerned about the Church of England and who, who gets to be the priest in these historic buildings, like, are actually in church on a Sunday. Right, or actually have yeah. any skin in the game in terms of the life of the church, in terms of the proclamation of the gospel, like all these things. Um, and yet here is, you know, someone who's actually a, a priest <laughs> devoted his life yeah. to it, or, or in your case, your family, you know, actively involved in the local church and serving and being there. You know, that doesn't matter. You're actual like you can't, you know, you can't actually be more invested in this institution in the church than yeah. me, even though I maybe show up at Christmas. Yeah. Um, but how dare you challenge it? Because, you know, it's there for me, yeah. not you, even if I'm not there, but it's, yeah. it's waiting. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, and, and you've talked about this in other places about like, you know, who gets to be Christian, like in, in, in our mind's eye, in our, in our public discourses, um, who gets to be that representative and it's um, white people um, yeah. when, you know, that, that this ignores so much of the actual reality of what's going on around who's actually in churches and who's actually the lifeblood and driving force of creativity and you know ingenuity in the churches. Mm. Yeah. You were talking about going back to, to to kind of look over the book and make some changes. Um, and you were saying how you, know, you kind of went back and you had, it had been written in that post-Obama glow, you know, like and 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 you know change and hope. Um, and then there's been 10 years of um, not only potentially Obama not delivering on a lot of the things that people hoped for, and then also the white lash of Trump being elected. So I'm sure there's both this disheartening um, mode when you go back, but then at the same time, you're going back because this resurges of Black Lives Matter and people want to engage this book. And yet all like books of a various stripe that are addressing race are flying off shelves. So there's also like, well, maybe it's changing again. So I'm, I'm wondering about like that kind of dual modes and whether you're kind of like, okay, am I just setting myself up to be disappointed that if I come back in 10 years, it'll be like, hey, remember those movements that we were all hopeful and something else <laughs> happened instead? Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think there's always been, for me, two two different modes of thinking that are always kind of running parallel to each other, really. On the one, I think, in terms of social movements, I've always understood that it's probably best understood in metaphorical terms, like a pendulum. Mm. So the pendulum swings. It swings from left to right, from right to left, and we have different moments. So so during Britain, like we had, like, the Blair era, and certainly someone who was a member of the Labour Party as left it and, jo- and rejoined it several times, I mean, over the years, because, you know, um, it's just one of those relationships that <laughs> kind of does sort of set me up for um, for optimism one moment and then despair on the next, so, you know. So um, and therefore, like, the Obama moment was one of those where the pendulum swung in one direction and we thought that what we were seeing was maybe the herald of a more progressive, a more enlightened, um, a more equitable 
way of, of being human beings. Mm. And the church had an important role in that. I mean, Obama's community organizing came out of his association uh, 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 association with um, the church of Jeremiah Wright in mm. Chicago, uh, a United Church of Christ um, church. And so a lot of his initial political organizing really came out of mobilizing young people, mm. particularly through, through social media. That was a particular moment. Then the, uh, and then the pendulum sort of swung really in the other direction, which was seen in terms of Trump, in terms of Brexit, in terms of Bolsonaro, in terms of various other strong right-wing nationalist leaders in several parts of the world. That's swung. hopefully maybe it's swinging back again. I tended not to be too caught up in those things. I was one of those who was happy when Obama was elected, but for, but not for one minute did I think that this heralded a post-racial new reality and somehow this was like King's dream now embodiment in them. I, I, I never believed that. And the reason I never believed that is two reasons. Firstly is that the pendulum does swing. It's not fixed. It swings from side to side, and therefore one always has to take each moment as a temporary moment for what it is. It's a temporary moment. Make the best of it. Try put seeds in place. Try put work in place that will outlast the swings in the other direction, mm. but recognize that it's just a moment. Mm. Therefore, alongside that, my more considered thinking is that I'm working for the kingdom of God, for the reign of God, for the economy of God, which having the nomenclature you want to use for that which God's standards that are not, are not reversible, they're permanent. And I think I love the quote from Martin Luther King where it says, you know, like the arc, the arc of the mold universe is long, but it bends towards justice. It bends in one direction. It's just this. It's just that it's it's a long arc, and there's going to be a long journey towards it. But it but it definitely goes in one direction. Mm. It's not reversible. It doesn't it, it doesn't oscillate and and vacillate. So it's not a set of values that says, well, actually, we believe in the preferential option for the poor, but only for now. But in 10 years' time, that will change our mind. That's not how the kingdom works. So for me, that's the permanent standard to which I am working that sits in parallel with the vacillation of human experience that does change from place to place. So I tend to be fairly even keeled. So I tend not to be overly exuberant when it's swinging in my direction because I'm not because I know it won't last. But then at the same point, I try not to get too overwhelmed with despair when it swings against us because I still believe that the agency of God and the, and, the, and the transformative power of the spirit is working in the midst in whichever direction it is in order to steer us on that moral arc that is long, but it definitely bends towards justice. Thank you for that. That's, that's both hopeful and, 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 and really helpful I think for especially and and reminding us not to also confuse those kind of more um political and and earthly uh, moments of hey good news with um this is 
God incarnate again, you know, kind of thing, which I think is is, is helpful. Um, just kind of a one final question, a little off off topic, um, as as we kind of get toward the end of the episode. Is so you're a practical theologian. Um, I know from from your work how important like workshops and dialogue are to the work that you produce. Um, so, you know, I think it's very you know it's tough to ask folks to to reflect on church and COVID and isolation and theology and COVID within it, right? We're not going to know the full effect and the impact for a long time. But I was thinking about like, you know, right now, you know, probably a lot of the way you like to do theology and that you think theology should be yeah. done and explored just, just is impossible, yeah. right? Um, yeah. And, you know, so a lot of the work we're going to get is people kind of hauled up and just, well, it's going to do it by myself, I guess. Um, so I'm just curious of your thoughts as a practical theologian on the unique challenges of being a practical theologian or being a someone in the church seeking to help people with working through maybe some of that stuff we we're talking about, like the way they've named themselves and maybe helping them to understand that there's some problems there and maybe there's more life in another kind of naming. You know, How are you feeling about that work amidst all this and, and yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's been it's, it's been incredibly hard. It's been incredibly hard. And I think what I've simply had to try and do is to say that a lot of the work I'm doing um, comes in two different guises. So at one level, there's probably I've probably written more theoretical stuff of late than I've ever done in previous mm-hmm. years. Um, so some of it's just saying, well, I've not been able to kind of test this out to wrestle with. Uh, it's in situ with people, so I'm just theorizing. At one level, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's what 90% of most theologians do anyway, is just, is just a theorize, and they tend not to develop their work from engagement with real people on real context. So at one level, I've done that. Um, at one level, it's actually been quite interesting because I've never really done that before. So I wasn't quite sure if I could do it. So I was actually quite pleased that I did a couple of I, I did a couple of published articles that were just very theoretical. You know, they, they were me just thinking in my head, mm. this is a particular question. How then does one? How then does one wrestle through it and get to some kind of resolution at the end? And both got published, and and so I guess. You know, I'm not, there's always a learning experience in anything. So I've learned that, that the kind of more abstract intellectual, rational thinking stuff that I always thought was never my thing. Actually, I can do it. I mean, I don't love it, but I don't love it, but I can do it. So, you know, so that's been a good kind of revelation. So I suppose it gives me more strings to my bow. Mm. I think what it's also done as well, it has then just said to me that, I long for the day when I can be back in community with people. That that I have missed that, and and as good as this particular medium is, because yeah. you know, I mean, I've been involved in more international stuff, mm. and so quite a lot of stuff I've organised. You know, the fact is like you can get people from all over the world to engage. So you know, so like, so there are some good things that have come out of this. I don't want to lose that. Mm-hmm. That's been fantastic. But in the end, as a practical practical theologian, there's nothing really beats being with other people in a particular context, Mm. wrestling with ideas in that particular moment Mm. where what is both constraining as well as what is liberating 
are the real stories that people bring, that then they become the template against which you are trying to test out whether something that you're saying is, re is real or not. So, you know, I mean, so even, so actually even going back and revising is God colorblind was really quite momentous in one respect, because actually to, to go back to it, to go back over some of the exercises that were originally developed in community with people and doing that and revising it now sat in your study by yourself at a point whereby I probably had literally not met another human being to touch for months mm. was a very weird, weird kind of dissonance. Mm. So, you know, so even going back and rereading it and amending it was to think back to the days when habitually I would see people almost every single day. Mm. And a lot of weekends I would be in a church or in a community meeting and we would be trying out an idea and they would be responding and I would be recording their responses. I think the appetite to do that has only grown all the more mm. by being in this particular lockdown moment. But as I said, there have been some learning from that. And I, and I said, I've, I've learned that I can write in a different way if I really need to, and I can do it. And that's good. Will never be my preferred way, but it's nice to know that I can do it. If I have to. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. And I'm, yeah, that's awesome. Um, so for, uh, thank you so much for being on today, Anthony. I really appreciate your time. Uh, folks, go and check out, go and buy, go and get for your library, Is God Colorblind, uh, the, the new edition with the new afterword. Uh, and, uh, and you can also check out a bunch of other books, uh, both written and edited, uh, Anthony, and, um, and you can, if you're really interested, in, we've talked about theologizing Brexit a couple of times. You can find that old interview somewhere in the feed. Uh, anything else you want to promote or yeah, drop people's um, attention to? Okay. It's just a, a, so, anyway, a blatant plug, and I, I found this out entirely by accident because like, the publisher didn't tell me, is that I was going on various websites like, trying to find something for a form I was filling in mm. and actually found out that. The outlets are bringing out a paperback version of Is God Colorblind in March. Great. Wait, a, a, March, a paperback version of Is... Oh, sorry. The, yeah. Sorry. A paperback version of Theologized in Brexit. Great. Sorry. Oh, that's so good yeah. to know. That's so good to know. Mm. Brexit. So basically, it will go down from £120 down to £36. Beauty. And it's definitely worth picking up, folks. It's, it's one of my... Um, yeah, it was such an incredible book filled with really good essays. So, um, yes, now wait until then and then get it. <laughs> yeah. And the costs will be probably about a third. Yeah. That's great. Oh, well, folks, thanks for, thanks, Anthony, again, thanks for joining us. And uh, thanks for listening, folks. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.